0: To offer battle to bad men near and far. He conquered fear and he conquered hate. He turned dark night into day.
1: This week, we produce Plot Points podcast on the Ritz, get high anxiety from chasing blazing saddles, and go all space balls for Mel Brooks.
0: Excuse me while I whip this out. (laughs)
1: This is Plot Points Podcast. the Plot Points Podcast. Uh, we are coming to you from beautiful Southern California, and uh, I have a uh, a great co-host today. His name is Lorenzo Porcelli. He's a good friend and uh, just a just an amazing human being. Hi, how are you doing today, Larry? I'm phenomenal. I phenomenal, thought I- yeah. Um, let me give you a little bit of background on Larry. He he's one of those guys. I I, I mean, you can't stop uh, listing his accomplishments. But uh he's from New York. Uh, he's been out here for quite a while. He actually is responsible for building a great number of the theaters here in Southern California and um he's he worked with uh with the, the Edwards chain with the Regency chain and you know, he's currently with uh, Maya Cinemas, which is uh Esparza uh Montezuma Esparzas company and they they have uh, theaters in the uh, inland valley which is a really great uh, area of california so um if i we used to we used to call larry the historian because he's been around movies for so long he's also a writer um he, i i mean a published author he's president of the uh, southern california writers association which meets every third um uh, uh, Saturday at uh, the Claim Jumper restaurant in Fountain Valley. And they have incredible speakers, just the most amazing people come and talk to them. And they're always packed. They're between 65 and 85 people every time, even if they just mention somebody's going to be there, they, people show up. So, uh, Larry, I'm so glad to have you. We're we're also uh, co-founders of the Orange County Screenwriters Association. I met you in 2009. Um, And we started the organization shortly after that. So, um, it's been a, it's been just great. We're going to go on 10 years, uh, here pretty soon. Next year will be 10 years. Is that amazing?
2: Yes. 10 years. How quickly?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't seem possible. So, um, so, uh, anyway, so Larry, uh, I know you're, you're pretty prolific, uh, when your life allows you to be. Are you working on anything or? Uh have you been writing or w- what are you doing?
2: Yes, I'm working with uh a cousin of mine on a script and on a novel. Um I keep getting stuck because of other other uh avenues that I'm in with work. We're right. Right. And uh she came she's uh twenty-four and uh she came out here uh uh-huh. her family and uh recently her father was transferred with a company and, uh, we hit up at a meeting at a dinner and we were talking about it and she's been writing for four years and, uh, she worked with Warner Music and she did all kinds of writing. So we had very similar careers. So we're working together. I showed her how far I'd gotten in the novel, would like to finish, let her read a screenplay. She's got ideas. So we're doing that. Wow. Excellent. And two, I'm working with, uh, uh, Spanish language filmmakers. Uh, to bring them closer to, uh, the American public. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been fantastic because the quality of film coming from Mexico, uh, has been so superior. It's been unbelievable. It's just fantastic.
1: So, I mean, that kind of naturally leads us into, like, what, you know, things that, I mean, you're right at the bleeding edge of, uh, film distribution and, uh you you go to a lot of events you hear a lot of scuttlebutt about what's coming up i mean do you see are you seeing any trends in film um that i mean have changed in the last 10 years
2: sure uh, of course the most obvious one is diversity within film mm. that didn't come about just because the academy people in the academy complained about it
3: mm-hmm. it came
2: about because of the markets available and the market expanded into China and Asia, uh, where it hadn't been there before. So, uh, just by showing the movie there with some, uh, different, uh, you know, mixed cultural groups in the movie, it expanded the audiences mm. immensely.
1: So, so, the, so you've got diversity in not only cultural diversity from, uh, Asian markets, but also societal diversity from women and, and, uh, uh, yeah. black filmmakers and leads and yeah. stuff. Is that, is that what you're saying? Oh,
2: yes, absolutely. The diversity, I mean, and the even no matter whether you are a filmmaker of, uh, you know, if you're working with different, uh, trying, depends on your story, of course, but uh, if you're trying to reach a broad area that you want successful to reach, you have cultural diverse, diversity in your film. You can be isolated in your film because of the story. It may be about a little town in, uh, North Dakota or something. So it is kind of isolated, you know? Um, a friend of mine wrote a wonderful novel and she was, uh, about a, uh, a woman who met a black man in Arkansas in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened, you know, just, just, so you could have any kind of diversity, but yeah, it just depends on the situation.
1: Well, I mean I'm talking about I'm more talking about not looking back but looking forward and uh you know I mean that's that's probably a great story uh, a mixed race relationship in the 50s but I I I think we're constantly these days talking about uh women leads more women leads more you know the superhero uh market there's uh we last week or last podcast we talked about uh, black superheroes which that seems like there's there's a lot coming up let me ask you this: We had talked about on the last podcast if because I I assumed there'd be more political movies coming out. I I, I like the post a whole lot, but that was something you know that happened 30 years ago or 35 years ago, whatever it was. Is do you stand if you're writing a political movie and you skew toward the left or to the right? Are you are you um, are you eliminating half of your audience?
2: Well, it depends on uh, the story and who's in it, and uh, but the chances of uh, it being made, if you're steering to the right, are uh, much less than if you're steering to the left.
1: Is that because Hollywood is is fairly stratified in uh, in a liberal, you know, I, I, which which I certainly am okay with because I'm a liberal, but is that because of the 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 historical Uh, divisiveness in, uh, not divisiveness, Uh, uh, Hollywood is typically left-leaning. Is that what you're saying? Well, on social issues, yes. On
2: social issues, they're very uh, in the forefront and always have been. Mm -hmm. Uh, Good cause and uh, for humans.
1: Yeah, That's a good point to make because uh, studios are not very, uh, they're very conservative in a lot of ways when it comes to making movies, right? So they're more socially... Conser- they're more socially liberal but uh financially conservative
2: i mean even uh uh let's someone to the right like Denish de souza mm-hmm. he has, doesn't just get his movie made you know he has to find the backing and mm. he's gotten distribution because um a couple of his movies did okay mm-hmm. so when they put i mean overtly political film out in the marketplace they they have response to it and, you know, there was the movie Hillary, there was a movie, there are a lot of different movies uh, relating to one side or the other mm-hmm. that that audience came to. So it was um, not only politically viable, but it was financially viable to draw people in to see it. And usually the fun thing, funny thing is when you have a movie of either side, both sides come to view it mm-hmm. uh, because you find the audience for it, if it's overtly political, it's usually a lot of the time seemingly more involved in the, um, causes that are, you know, very essential to either side. And so they come out to see it, whether or not they, you know, agree with it, but they come out to see it.
1: Well, I would say, yeah, I would say you want to know thy enemy, right? So if you're, if you're a conservative, you might go see a liberal, uh, documentary. And if you're a liberal, you might go see, a, you might go see, as you mentioned, Dinesh D'Souza has a, uh, a new movie out called Death of a Nation. Mm-hmm. which is comparing what they did to Lincoln to what they're doing supposedly to Trump these days which I I think is a ridiculous comparison but um how's the movie doing do you have any ideas well it's just coming out now oh okay all right well we'll watch it i it he's a liberal i mean he's a conservative uh commentator um and he did the, the movies you meant you mentioned i mean he's done Hillary's America Obama's America Imagine the world, America. Imagine the world. So he's 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 uh, apparently getting uh, some good responses on that. So, well, but I don't how to create I don't know. A, create uh,
2: um what do you call it? he would he would create discord. He creates uh, he works in hyperbole. You know when he's exploiting the picture,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, so that of course incites a certain part to come see it, and then uh, intrigues interest in another part to see right. what the heck.
1: Well, so does, uh, so does, what's his name? The, um, oh, I can't believe I can't remember his name. The documentarian who did the, on Flint and. Michael uh, Moore, isn't it? Yeah, Michael Moore. I mean, he's very much, I think, in, in that camp, right? Uh, he's yeah. the, lo- he's anyway, the left. And, and, level. the right. So. When he
2: opened, uh, um his movie, uh, Fahrenheit nine eleven. Uh huh. Um, the audience was overwhelming to see that film. I mean, it was the number one movie in America over the fourth oh, really? of July weekend. And the audience I saw in Orange County was predominantly Republican mm. and they wanted to see this film. In fact, um, it really, it, I had time to say it, but at one of the theaters in Orange County, someone came and said, this movie shouldn't be playing here, you know, and I happened to be there and I said to the person, well, it's just a movie and it's a freedom of expression and that night, the next morning on the 4th of July, coming over to that theater, there was a huge flag and I'm talking huge, like a tent size and it was hanging over the marquee so somebody had put that there <laughs> on, taking taken the time to buy one and, and so on and so forth to make their statement so we put a, we had another thing made that, put the uh Bill of rights you know in the one of the poster cases so <laughs> and
1: yeah. then you and then at the same time you got yourself a nice big flag right that's a great uh, great benefit so.
2: it was a great picture, and the uh, local paper took a picture of it and so oh, on wow.
1: so the that that old trope about no uh uh there there is no such thing as bad what is it bad reviews or bad news no, bad, no such thing as bad publicity yeah bad publicity so I know how to use it yeah exactly exactly. Um, so for myself, I've been working on, um, a woman in jeopardy film, which a lot of, um, cable, basic cable companies buy. So if you, you know, for me, it's a, it's a, I'm always looking to sell that next script. So, uh, women in jeopardy is always a great, um, uh, great market for, for, uh, independent filmmakers or for writers. And then I've been working a little bit on my Revolutionary War script. I I I got to get back to that uh, in a full-time manner, but like you, uh things intrude, you know, and because I teach three classes and I do other things and it's uh, it's hard sometimes to sit down and get everything done. And well,
2: then cool. uh, still working on my book proposal, The Revolutionary War. I mean, that's so intriguing. Oh. Anything historical from the past because, you know, the old expression history repeats itself, well it mm-hmm. does. And also People are making the same old mistakes since uh, time began.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but uh, I was astounded at how uh, much I didn't know about the founding of this country and how, um, I don't want to get political, but how much I'm disappointed by what we're going through now uh, compared to what we started with and the high ideals that that uh, our country was based on. So, um, and I'm not talking just about any particular party. I'm talking about both parties or all parties. It's just, uh, so the, you know, writing the script was a real eye-opener for me, but it's also an incredibly interesting story, which, uh, which I'm well, having fun with.
2: Great, a great novel called Oliver Wiswell. And, um, the writer took the side of the British mm-hmm. and talked about the, all the atrocities and everything committed by the, uh independent americans mm-hmm. and it's a fascinating novel um so it gives you a totally different perspective of the people involved and their motives and everything else so you know they always throw things up in the air so you as a reader and you know same as you want to have a reader intrigued by some some premise you know mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. now was that is that alternative you t- is that an alternative history uh, thing or is it just uh isn't just the Revolutionary War told from the perspective of the British? Correct. Okay. Yeah, I've had, I have, I've seen a couple alternate history books. Actually, one of my friends, Chris Stires, um, has written one called Rebel Nation, which is really well done. He's a terrific novelist, and he and I collaborate on on uh, material every once in a while. So uh, it, it's a truly, it's like Nazi Germany or or you know, <laughs> we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I mean, it's a. It's a fancy, you know, it's a horrifying story obviously, but it's also a fascinating uh area to explore as a writer.
0: Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No. It's pronounced Frankenstein. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced
1: Igor. <laughs> All right. Well, um so I want to do, um, you and I had talked a little bit before the podcast. Uh, I wanted to talk about, uh, Mel Brooks. I wanted to focus on him yeah. on this podcast. Uh, you know, it, it's hard. I think I, I, not hard, but it's, it's, when you talk about writers, you don't talk about comedy writers with the same, um, you know like what it, what would you call it um, uh, you know gravitas as uh, as say like somebody like you know Aaron Sorkin or William Goldman, but boy i mean i'll just we'll just 'll just throw this out there i mean you you have a deep appreciation for Mel Brooks, I know, but what do you think about you know how, how hard is it to write comedy as opposed to other things? oh I think it's extremely hard mm-hmm. uh, trauma.
2: You know, can be created very easily. And I say easily in a sense of, um, a man and woman have a fight. Mm -hmm. Comedy, it has to have the same essence, but also be funny or have an element of humor in it. But by the way, he has gravitas because he won an Oscar for screenwriting.
1: Oh, he's run, he's won a ton of, yeah, no, he's won a ton of awards. I'll get into that in my profile. But what I'm saying is I think, um, people don't put the same, um, it like it, it's the same credibility. Yeah, well, in the same emphasis, I, I, I can imagine that there's a, a an overwhelming propensity to reward drama as opposed to comedy as a, as best picture. He's won for as a writer, but I don't think anything he's done uh, has won best picture. I can't remember, no. but yeah, but nominated. Nominated. No, no, yeah, absolutely. They, they. I think the the academy recognizes the, the uh, the the skill. But they don't, they rarely reward it. I can't think of, can you think of any comedies that have been, that have won Academy Awards? Besides any, I guess Woody Allen probably has won a few.
2: Yeah, Woody Allen, you can't take, well, starting back in the thirties, they had a few comedies and, uh, you can't take it with you was, uh, was one.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that was best picture. And, uh, you know, as you went on, you got, of course, into the seriousness with war. Right. And so it didn't allow for the, um, for the same
1: thing. Okay, so um, I just looked it up. The following have been the only comedies that have won Best Picture. It Happened One Night. That was a great one. Yeah. You can't take it with you. That was it was kind 34. Of romantic. It wasn't an overt comedy, but it was a. Uh, it was pretty funny. I mean, when he's talking about the dunking of the donuts and the, uh, you know, the thumbing and stuff like that, it was pretty, pretty, pretty amusing. Going My Way, which was a musical comedy in 44. <clears throat> Excuse me. Tom Jones.
2: Oh, yeah. Fantastic
1: film. The the Sting, which I guess could qualify. Annie Hall and The Artist. And that's pretty much it. So, one, four, five, six, seven comedies in how many, in, what, what are we up to? 60 or 70 years of Academy Awards or something like that?
2: Uh, since 28, I believe.
3: Mongo only pawn in Game of Life.
1: On that note, I'm going to do, uh, my focus on Mel Brooks. Uh, and then I, you've got some, your top 10 Mel Brooks m- movie or top, what I don't know, seven or eight or 10 or whatever it is, Mel Brooks films. So <clears throat> pardon me. So we'll talk about it after I do the profile. Um, if you're too young to know Mel Brooks from his heyday, you certainly can see, still see many reflections of his work today. The film, The Producers, starring Zero Mostel and Gene, Gene Wilder has been made into a Broadway hit that's still playing. The original production starring Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick has run for 2,502 performances and counting and has won a record-breaking 12 Tony Awards. It was also remade into a 2005 film starring Lane and Broderick. Brooks' Get Smart series, which he co-created with writer Buck Henry, was recently made into a movie starring Steve Carell and Ann Hathaway as Agents 86 and 99. The same silly, hilarious bits that infused the late 60s comedy and made it a TV hit were in abundance in the movie version. More recently, there's been talk of remaking Robin Hood Men in Tights, Blazing Saddles, which I'd love to see if they could do, and Young Frankenstein. If you've ever watched a Judd Apatow comedy, you can clearly see Brooks' influence, but he's also credited with being the inspiration of hundreds of other filmmakers and writers, including the Farrelly Brothers, the Wayans, and even Galaxy Quest and Guardians of the Galaxy movies, because Brooks spoofed Star Wars first with Spaceballs. Mel Brooks was born in 1928 in Brooklyn. His real name is Melvin Kaminsky. He was poor growing up in a tenement. His father died when he was two, and he said of that, quote, there's an outrage there. I may be angry at God or at the world for that, and I'm sure a lot of my comedy is based in that anger and hostility. According to his biography, at the age of nine, he went to a Broadway show with his uncle and saw the Paul Porter play, Anything Goes, which you and I were talking about last night, Larry. And who was in the that movie or the, who was in that play? One of our favorite uh, people. Yeah, Hitler Merman. There's no best. Yeah. At that time, he decided uh, at the age of nine that he was going into show business. And I didn't know this, uh, I, I guess I never even considered it, but he was taught to play drums by Buddy Rich, um, and he was so good at it, uh, he was earning money at the age of 14 as a drummer. Brooks served in the United States Army as a corporal, diffusing landmines, of all things, as the Allies pushed into Germany during World War II. After the war, Brooks was a Borscht Belt performer in the Catskills, playing piano and drums. He sat in one night when one of the regular comedians got sick, and ta-da, Mel Brooks was born. He changed his name at that time so he wouldn't be confused with the trumpet player Max Kaminsky. Sid Caesar was a friend and hired Brooks to write for the show of shows with such greats as Carl Reiner, Neil Simon, Larry Gelbart, and Woody Allen. Something, again, that I didn't know was that the Buddy Sorrell character portrayed by Maury Amsterdam on The Dick Van Dyke Show, and that was created by Carl Reiner, that character, uh, a buddy, was inspired by Mel Brooks. Um, the 1982 film *My Favorite Year* is loosely based on Brooks' experiences as a writer on the show and an encounter with an aging actor, with the aging actor Errol Flynn. One of Brooks' famous skits was *The 2,000-Year-Old Man*, in which he played a man who had 42,000 children and no one comes to visit. The 2000 year old man was a huge hit for Carl Reiner and Brooks selling millions of albums and having several iterations as not only comedy albums but TV shows and live performances. Brooks never considered himself a writer, a funny talker is what he liked to call himself, and he did exactly that early in his career. In 1963, Brooks won an Academy Award for an animated short called The Critic, which you can find, actually find on YouTube and which features goofy animations and Brooks talking about those animations uh, over, it's like a voiceover. His unprof skills were legendary, but as funny as he was improvisationally, despite what he said, he was even better at writing. With his friend Buck Henry in 1965, the TV show Get Smart was created. The Spoof, starring Don Adams as Agent 86, featured a bumbling secret agent quite unlike the suave, sophisticated James Bond 007, who was just setting the movie world on fire. The show, Get Smart, garnered seven Emmy Awards and no doubt inspired Austin Powers, as did many of Brooks' original spoofs of westerns, musicals, adventure films, Alfred Hitchcock films, and old horror monsters. Perhaps my favorite Mel Brooks film is The Producers, a musical comedy about two Broadway producers trying to lose money and mounting a musical production about Adolf Hitler, guaranteed to tank, except it didn't. It featured such notable songs as Springtime for Hitler. Mel Brooks claims it's his job to make terrible things entertaining, and he certainly did. The producers just kills me every time I see it. Unfortunately, once made, that film, that film garnered no, uh, major studio or distribution, uh, deal. Nobody would touch it. An independent distributor finally took it on. It was a Smash Underground hit and won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay and was decades later made into a Smash Broadway show, so. There's a great article, I'll post the uh, link in the show notes. There's a Vanity Fair article about the making of the producers. It's really, really good. Oddly enough, uh, after these amazing successes, Brooks felt his career had flattened out in 1972 and that he was done. He lived off residuals from his 2,000-year-old man album and looked for work, which he couldn't find. Perhaps he offended too many people with his spoof on Nazis and the producers. But if they thought he was done offending, they didn't know Brooks. Blazing Saddles burst onto the film market. Called vile, offensive, and repulsive, it was also in 1974 the highest grossing film and a massive success among younger audiences. One of the critics, obviously not knowing anything about what people really like, said it's a limp, shapeless mess of a film that trades in a genuine respect for Western tropes for puerile, vulgarity, and joy buzzer shows of showmanship. Obviously, we all thought differently. It was nominated, uh, Blazing Saddles, for three Academy Awards for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Madeleine Kahn, Best Film Editing, and Best Music Original Song, Blazing Saddles, which I'm pretty sure Mel Brooks wrote.
2: He wrote the song and got Frankie Lane, the all-time Western film singer, to record it. Frankie Lane didn't realize that the movie was a comedy afterwards. If I'd have known that movie, I wouldn't have recorded the song. It was,
1: and it's great. It's a great song. It's, it's on YouTube. If you can find it, it's great. So.
2: He had to put it in his repertoire wherever he performed. Oh, it,
1: no kidding. <laughs> that's hilarious. The film, uh, Blazing Saddles, won the Writers Guild of America Award for Best Comedy Written Directly for the Screen. And in 2006, it was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the Library of Commerce and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Gene Wilder, who was one of the stars of Blazing Saddles, afterwards teamed up with Brooks for Young Frankenstein. Frankenstein, uh, it earns $86 million worldwide and received two Academy Award nominations for writing Adapted Screenplay and Academy Award for Best Sound. In 1982, Spaceballs, which actually just turned 30 on June 24th, which was a spoof of Star Wars with Rick, Rick Moranis as Dark Helmet, who played, it was like Darth Vader. At the time, Mel Brooks and Woody Allen were considered the two most successful comedy directors in the world today by Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. And of course, Brooks decides then to take his career in a completely different direction when he procured the, the compelling and award-winning film, the, when he produced the compelling and award-winning film, The Elephant Man, directed by, you know, David Lynch. Oh yes, David Lynch. Knowing that anyone seeing a poster reading Mel Brooks Presents Anything would expect, they would expect a comedy, he set up the company Brooks Films. Brooks Films has since produced a number of non-comedy films, including David Cronenberg's The Fly, which was a great, great film, Francis, and 84 Charing Cross Road, and also Richard Benjamin's My Favorite Year, which, as mentioned, was partially based in Mel Brooks' real life. He also produced the comedy Fatso that wife Anne Bancroft directed before she died in, in 2005. Brooks called Bancroft the guiding force behind the producers and Young Frankenstein for the musical theater. After meeting her, he said, from that day, quote, from that day until her death, we were glued together. Brooks has 55 credits as an actor, 44 as a writer, 23 as a producer, and 12 as a director. He's garnered hundreds of awards, including being only one of 12 people and the only writer to have an EGOT, which is winning. he won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony for various things. Astoundingly, Brooks also won a Hugo and a Nebula Award, which is the science fiction community's highest honors for the movie Young Frankenstein. CNN asked him this question. Mr. Brooks, when you look back over your work, have you found there's something universally true of a good joke? Brooks said, which I thought was this is an amazing answer, I think a good joke always refers to the human condition, to how our dreams fall apart or how we expect something and it doesn't happen. A good joke translates in human experience. It doesn't have to parody anything. A good, a a good joke, he says, is a human event. Brooks has never sat still long. Quoting him, "I'm still a horse that can run. I may not be able to win the Derby, but what do you want? What do you do when you retire? I guess you don't." Brooks turned 91 this year and has a one-man show running across the country, including Vegas, as he continues to make films and win awards. He recently did an HBO documentary called If You're Not in the Obit, Eat Breakfast with his friends Carl Reiner, Dick Van Dyke, <clears throat> and Norman Lear. He's truly become a living legend. Not bad for a poor Jew from Brooklyn, as Brooks would say. He quote, he's quoted as saying, Immortality is a byproduct of good work. And if that's true, then Mr. Mel Brooks, you will live forever. So... uh the question I have of you, before you get to your list, is could Mel Brooks films be made today? Yes, it could be. Blazing Saddles?
2: Um, well, it could be made. Well, uh, the distribution would be difficult. Okay. Um, but uh, the audience is, you know, if you, depends. Blazing Saddles was, part. one of the writers was Richard Pryor. So, um, the, the point of the movie was enough, you know, uh, there's a movie called, you know, about the Klansmen coming out and the Black Klansmen and, um, uh, almost similar, almost very similar. And they use the words all the time and mm-hmm. it goes throughout it. And that got made.
1: Yeah. But and, that's, uh, that's, is it, did you say a movie about the Klansmen? Wouldn't that be a documentary? Or are you well, saying?
2: Oh, no. It's called the Black Klansmen mm. with, uh, uh, Spike Lee is the director.
1: Oh, okay. I see. So yeah. it's like, okay. It's based
2: on a true story about a black guy who joined the clan <laughs> on paper and everything else, you know, and uh, had substitute people go in for him to the meetings. Oh my God. To the, uh, as a writer, you know. And then, but nonetheless, the same word <gasps> and so on and so forth. But he gets away with it because they use it in a serious dramatic effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've added some humor to it. And, um, you know, Mel Brooks's total, the whole purpose of the film was about um, the cause co- of racism. Right. And he used, you know, the overt comedy uh, to demonstrate the ridiculousness of racism the extremes that it goes to. Mm-hmm. He engaged Richard Pryor in it. And when that came out, you didn't have an outcry from the black community about it mm-hmm. because he was known for being, Anti-racism, you know, and he went out and spoke, and people spoke with him. So you'd have to come up with a marketing campaign to be able to do it. Well, it,
3: it'd
1: be interesting. To, to
3: do
2: every it,
1: other one too. Yeah, it would be interesting to see them try. I, you know, I mean, he's his whole point is obviously is use comedy to bring uh, to a focus uh, social issues. His movie was, came out in 1974.
2: It, five years later, on the fifth anniversary, they re-released it. And it was number one in America for three weeks in a row, and no movie had ever had that done. No movie.
1: Yeah, but t- today, today, what you get is, I mean, there's a there's a true focus on on sexuality and uh, racism, and I, I, I'm just wondering if any studio would take that chance. Um, of of recreating those movies with that kind of language and those kinds of themes, I I, I and especially not from a black filmmaker. He's, you know, his work originally was, uh, you know, he's a he's a white Jew from New York. I I'm I'm really curious to see if that could ever happen. Um, anyway, hopefully they will. Hope I don't know why would you remake it? I it's such. No,
2: a, why would you remake? Yeah, it's a perfect
1: film yeah. as it is. So.
3: Boy. He's strict. Got to get in there close and find out what's happening.
1: There's our ticket.
0: Hey, boys, look what I got here. Hey, where are the white women at?
1: And so in honor of Mel Brooks, who just turned 91 not too long ago, we're going to also do a your favorite movies by him. And uh, go ahead. Well, of course,
2: I would say my favorite movie is Blazing Saddles. Mm-hmm. And I have brought it out in retro to audiences for 30 years and they keep filling audiences to come see it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, even dressing in costume, yeah. using it for fundraising. And it, it's just an awesome statement against racism through mm-hmm. use of the N word, mm-hmm. overt use of it. But it used physical comedy to blatantly show the ridiculousness and of hatred and of racism. And, um, you know, lines from that movie are used throughout the industry right now. Mm-hmm. People are talking about, oh, uh, how long are you on the set for? And everybody will say, well, they lose me after the bunker scene, which in that movie, I mean, he ended up playing Hitler in the last scene in the movie where they were in the studio. And uh, they, he had the line himself, Mel Brooks, oh, they lose me after the bunker scene, relating <laughs> to that movie. <laughs> so people on sets everywhere say that all the time, every mm-hmm. day, that, after the bunker scene, mm. and um, but but not only something like that, but the producers was probably my second favorite because it was um, funny as heck. Mm-hmm. But it was also smart, mm-hmm. and intelligent, mm-hmm. and you didn't he ha- didn't have to do slapstick humor there. It was really funny, and the cast, of course, you know, Zero Mostel was hilarious. Oh yeah, carried over the theme of it so well. So that was that was that one and you know i I've always loved young Frankenstein, oh
1: yeah, wow,
2: just every character in it was cr- great, you know, but he took each each one and, and you know embellished them with different traits and everything, and people carried it themselves, you know um just just ridiculousness,
1: but yeah it, truly ridiculous, I mean, when you <laughs> took the Frankenstein monster and you had him. In tales, you know, Peter Boyle. Oh my God! In tales him. singing a you know
2: a Broadway song. You know, it was
1: putting on the Ritz. <laughs> <laughs> and and
2: when the scene from Frankenstein where he spills the where uh, he's with the old man, you know, from Frankenstein, there he's with an old man at one time, the man who's blind. Right, right. In this one, <laughs> Gene Hackman was the
1: blind, blind. Oh God, yeah, right. hot stuff all over. Him. <laughs> caught him on fire until he had to run out of the house, you know. Well, and then Frau Blücher. Frau Blücher, yeah. uh, Cloris Leachman and No, and every time her name was uh, (laughs) – Yeah, the horses would scream. (laughs) It was hilarious. Uh,
2: I mean, just these little touches, how he knew how to embellish a story and a screenplay. Like, he does tell stories, you know. Mm. I don't know how you put that in a screenplay. I guess you could, but uh, – Oh, yeah. But he (laughs) – But he carried out so many things, you know, that way. Mm -hmm. Um, After that, I liked all his movies. You know, I've watched them all and have enjoyed History of the World. I really enjoyed, Mm -hmm. you know, you you enjoy more specific scenes where maybe they were, you know, maybe it wasn't Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein or producers. But um, the other movie I loved of his was um, 12 Chairs. And the 12 Chairs had Ron Moody who, um, I think it was two years later, or, oh, no, a year, two years before, he had been won an Oscar for, I believe, for Oliver, uh-huh. and for the movie, and he was Fagan. And, uh, he was such a prolific character. And in the 12 chairs, you know, he again had Dom de Louise, who he used a lot. And it was just a story, a simple story about the, the Russian mm-hmm. Revolution and how, uh, money was supposedly, treasure was supposedly hidden in the arm of one of the chairs that had been in this palace. Mm-hmm. And so, it, goes on to seek how these people were seeking to get it, you know. And uh, yeah, was, that was very well written, and that was his sequel to The Producers. And I would say on an intellectual level, it was about the same. And the humor, they, it had a lot of British humor in it with uh, Ron Moody, mm-hmm. his interpretation of it. So I, I really enjoyed that. All of his movies, I laughed. I laughed at Spaceballs from beginning to end just because it, it was silly. And mm-hmm. it was, but it made a lot of fun of Star Wars, you know. Mm-hmm. And it Just did it very, very well. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed uh, high anxiety, and I, I do in history of the world when Moses comes down from the mountain with the three tablets of commandments. Yeah, has fifteen commandments. <laughs>
3: on the and he, he says, oh, I've, uh, oh,
2: uh, 10, 10. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, only him would think of something like that, you know? Right, uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's amazing. Odd, odd things like that, but I've enjoyed every movie and I've had extreme laughter from them. I played some that weren't as funny as others. You know, Robin hood. I thought had some excellent scenage in it seems
3: mm-hmm.
2: movie wasn't fantastic, but it was really funny at times. Everything was funny. Silent movie, you know, uh, the,
1: uh, High Anxiety. I loved High Anxiety. Yeah, I liked High Anxiety a lot. I thought it was, uh, and that's a, that's a takeoff on a Hitchcock movie, Vertigo. Yeah. Yeah. He's the same, similar
2: thing. The birds chasing him and all
1: that. You're right. Right. All the Hitchcock movies. Oh. I didn't realize, um, he was the voice of Vlad in one, in Transylvania. Oh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize that. I just looked at his filmography and noticed that he does the, uh, the voice in Hotel Transylvania, and that's just, number three just opened, right? Just this last week.
2: Number three, and he's doing another couple of voices for some other upcoming ones, Mm -hmm. but he also was, uh, he played a great character in Putney Swope, Mm. Robert Downey's movie. He played Mr. Forget-It. It It was a very small part, but he did it, I think, I don't know, he knew Robert Downey Sr. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, he's just an amazing filmmaker, just an amazing talent. I mean, uh, when you look at his, you know, he was a stand-up comedian, so he's got this range that just doesn't end. I mean, what a career. Uh, we're certainly not going to see uh, somebody like this again. I can't, I mean, Jed Apatow, Jed Apatow is funny, but he's not Mel Brooks. And uh, I, I doubt that there's, you know, I, I mean, from a, from a perspective of coming from where he came from, he he's done everything right: radio, live performances, television, movies, uh, Broadway. Holy crap, uh, an amazing guy! But his films are, I think, will outlive him. Obviously, I mean, I'm 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 glad he's still around.
2: Yes, um, he's somebody's trying to get him to uh, at least be EP and active EP. In a production that they want to do a comedy, uh-huh. uh, so he's thinking about that. In fact, uh, it's supposed to star—well, uh, one of the stars in it would have been Carl
3: Reiner—and
2: mm. um, so uh, he may get involved in that one. We'll see.
3: Mm. That's
1: being done actually by uh, George Clooney. Mm-hmm. So um, I wonder why. I wonder why Mel Brooks doesn't write much anymore, or if he just decided he's done everything he you know he can i think his writing is just astounding um so funny all right well um those are great those are great movies i uh i'm sorry did you i'm sorry am i, interrupting?
2: I, I, I just didn't think he said you know he doesn't want to work day to day on something like a tv show which mm-hmm. he could mm-hmm. you know, but uh, he doesn't want to do the tedium of it he's 91 you
1: know yeah I, but i'm i'm talking about writing a script as opposed to doing a television show i i just don't understand why he's not writing still if he's i mean if the guy feels like he doesn't want to retire i could see if he said i'm retired and i don't want to do anything but maybe i'll get a chance to ask him I, I actually i know you met him and i i did meet him uh, at a at, at the uh, hollywood park at the track one day um and it just was a thrill i didn't get to talk to him for too long i said to him mr brooks i'm a huge huge fan he was with um uh oh god pat uh, the guy from 8 is enough the actor the the father in 8 is yeah. enough anyway i said i don't want to bother you uh, what can i say what can i say to not bother you he said goodbye and i said okay <laughs> he's just so fast
2: he's just so quick he so. called the theater one time and <clears throat> when i was doing a uh, uh, uh oh, excuse me I, when i was doing a uh, thing of uh, blazing saddles and it was going to play that night and it was sold out in three auditoriums and people were coming in costume and he called and he says uh this is Mel Brooks and i said oh right i said, sure it is and uh he said well who am i speaking with you know and i you know made some character name up from one of his movies and he's going uh this is Mel Brooks and then i realized it was him <laughs> Oh my God, this is really Mel Brooks. He said, I said that. <laughs> I said, oh my God, you must think I'm a real butthole. And he said, Well, not complete. <laughs> but uh, he was so kind and so nice,
1: you know. Yeah, what a great what a great human being. Just uh contributed so much joy to the world. Uh just wow. Wow. All right. Well, um, so uh that's Mel Brooks my my tribute and Larry's uh tribute uh, his favorite films. Which I agree with pretty much everything you said about it. I I probably like um, the producers first and Blazing Saddles second, but I I mean, how can you judge? That's like saying, uh, you know, here's two gold pieces. Which one do you like best? It's it's you know. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types wear a coat, pants with stripes, or coat, perfect Alright, so we have some uh, questions from people about script writing things. I'm gonna start by saying a couple of things about one of my students uh who is having trouble with his script and it's a kind of a specific problem to science fiction. Uh, which is, if you've ever seen the, the show Altered Carbon, um, there's a lot of very visually interesting things happening in in that movie, and I'm sure part of it is production, part of it is the director. But my student's frustration was that he, he was front-loading uh, a lot of things in the script Uh, with the world, with trying to build the world, like there's flying cars or there's these bridges or there's these robots or whatever. And we were, you know, he was being critiqued as saying that's, that's overwhelming. It's too much work, too much narrative in the beginning of the script, which it is. So he said, what, you know, what can I do about that? How do I build a world without, without describing it? And, and my response was to intersperse the world with uh, something that's going on in the narrative, which um, – or in the in the film, I should say. Like, for instance, I'm trying to find uh, – let me find page – let me find this script really quick, and I'll, I can give you a, a more concrete example. Oh, there it is. Okay. So, my again, my response was intersperse uh, interesting moments and suspense with the world building. And on page three of Altered Carbon, um, they have something like this. So there's a character – two characters in a home hotel and Kovacs who's the main character is somebody called an envoy and an envoy can has special uh, powers we'll say. So it says POV uh, uh, original uh, Kovacs envoy vision building an image in his head based on the tiny sounds he's hearing interior hallway outside hotel room Uh Uh, visual effects, clicks sketch into rifles, rustling movements expand to show shock troopers in the hallway, every shift of a boot or a hand expanding to show how many people are there. Uh, Then we go back and it says, Kovacs says to Sarah, who's there, SIA shock troopers, 12 fully armed lethal loads. Sarah, you can't know something like that. Kovacs, get dressed now. Sarah hesitates and swiftly pulls on pants and shirt heading for the kitchenette. Kovacs cocks his head hearing a series of tiny clicks. Kovacs, Semtex-29, Arc Flare Breacher, two seconds or less. Sarah, Jesus Christ, who are you? Kabloom, the entire wall of the motel room explodes inward like thunder. Man's voice, Takeshi Kovacs, although the, through the swirling fog of dust and debris, shock troopers appear, full armor, insecti- insectile-eyed helmets, snub-nosed Kalishnikov 2000s, which is an evolution of the AK-47. So the point I'm trying to make here is that he puts in this this narrative, he throws it in at the, at a very exciting moment, which says, shock troopers appear, full armor, insectile-eyed helmets, snub-nosed Kalishnikov 2000s. That's, instead of just saying that the shock troopers are in the hallway and they have, they're dressed like this, he puts it in in the middle of all this really incredible stuff that's happening with the story. And so... Uh, you, you you absorb it as part of the narrative, but you're willing to absorb it as part of the narrative, first of all, because it's well-written and it's not that long, but second of all, because it's in the middle of something exciting that's happening, so you're almost absorbing it subconsciously. You're almost not focusing on it because you're moving to the next part. So when you're world-building in, in science fiction, you have to watch how much setup you put in just these plain static paragraphs, and that's what my student was doing. Is He had several paragraphs of static description that meant nothing to us because we didn't even we didn't care about the characters at that point. We we hadn't met them. We don't I mean the world itself was fantastic, but it was boring to read. Uh it's not a novel. And so when you're writing a script, you have to take those those interesting world building moments and just slide them in somewhere where, where it seems appropriate. And the other thing that the other problem that new script writers uh, um, encounter is they think that everything has to be front loaded. They don't realize that you can take things and put them in later in the script when they're necessary. It's, it's it's impossible to really say in the abstract, but there are plenty of examples. If I could have found one, I would have brought one to you. But the 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 thing is, is you can take it. You can put it later. You don't have to put it on the first page or the second page or the tenth page. You can put it in page fifteen when it becomes important. That's when you should mention it, not not necessarily before. Okay.
2: Well, that's. Fascinating, and but you know, how do you say who the hell reads my script and uh, what the heck's a process to get it read?
1: Oh well, okay. So assuming that you have a connection, um, like you you know somebody, um, usually even if you know somebody personally in a studio or distribution company, or most actors, most television channels have their own production companies. There's of course Netflix and Amazon and all those those companies um but you're never going to get it to your your necessarily to your friend it's going to go to a script reader and a reader is going to do what they call coverage which is they read the script and then they do a report like a re- like a book report on it and based on their report then that may take the script to a higher level or it may not it may be there's there's a couple ways it could go so coverage is just a it's just a report on the script they report on everything they report on the length the genre um the tone the the writing the marketability etc 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 so they may recommend you as a writer and you uh, as uh, your script or they may only recommend you as a writer but not recommend your script let's say the concept doesn't work that well or they may not recommend you as a writer but recommend the script because it has a great concept if you come up with something truly unique they'll hire somebody to fix it but if it, it and then you could it, they then the, the worst of it is they don't recommend you or the writer in that case, it never gets read. So the first people that read your, the first people that touch your script are not the producers, directors, whatever actors you think they are. They're these script readers. And there's, I, I was a script reader for an agent for a while. I did uh, exactly this. I rec, I read the, I read five, or five to ten scripts a week, did reports on them, and then uh, gave them to an agent. And the agent decided based on my reports whether to um, represent the writer or not. But Again, having said that, there's a long process to even get your script to somebody. So write a, write a great script first and then worry about that stuff later. It was, it's funny. Uh, I was going to be a, um, a love connection. I, that's what I call them for a, a writer that I know. And he sent me a script and it was really well done except. Couple of problems with it, and I was, and I, this is what's kind of taken me away from my own writing, is I've been working with other people. But, uh, it was supposed to be a horror film, and there was no horror in the, in the first 10 or 12, 15 pages. He had put, he's a director, so he didn't know, but he had put scene numbers in, which is a no-no on any, any level, uh, when you're first writing a script, <clears throat> which is easy to fix, you just take the scene numbers out. But he also had camera directions everywhere because he wanted to direct the film. So the thing that, the thing that I'm working on with writers is making sure that their script is the best reading script it can be. Not the best, not the, not something you can't think in terms of you're going to film it. I mean, you can, but it's going to be hard to do. So when you're writing a script, uh, and the thing I tell people most is write it, write it like you would write a book. Make it as compelling as possible. Not like with all the narrative and all the internal monologues and stuff, but write it so it's as compelling a read as any book or as the best book you've ever read. So that's my, that's my advice on, on that. And that, that kind of led into, uh, the reason that I'm not doing as much writing as I want is because I'm trying to help other writers get their, their material out there. So.
3: Well, what,
2: what has helped you with your writing other than screenwriting book? Just book. Do help a lot of books out there about screenwriting seem so I don't know what the correct word is seems so uninformed Um, you know other than trying to give you these formulas
1: yeah well hopefully when my book comes out all that goes away but um (laughs) uh, good no so Woody Allen famously said if you if all you're doing is watching movies as a screenwriter you're failing and i find that to be true i i am constantly reading i i know you're a huge reader too you buy every damn book i i can't imagine that your book your book accounts <laughs> in your uh, in your uh, budget but you, you know yourself you you're inspired by everything right you you pick up i'm i sent you uh yesterday i sent you the uh Sutton Foster doing anything goes uh mm-hmm. from um from the play anything goes the revival and just watching the 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 precision of her and the dancers and the singers was incredible. It was a Tony Awards uh, a live Tony Awards presentation. So for me, everything I read, I do everything. I I've never stopped reading. I've never stopped watching videos. I've never stopped listening to music. It just I'm inspired by everything. Um, so I, I I would assume you're of the same mindset.
2: I know, I, I kept out of trouble in, uh, Catholic uh, grade school because <laughs> the teacher told me that I was so bold, but she couldn't punish me because I was such a good reader.
1: Oh, yeah, well, they, they put a high price on that in, in school, obviously, for a reason, for a reason. So, alright, I think, uh, um, I think that's enough, uh, questions, uh, for today. Um, we can, we can, I guess, uh, talk about, we're, we are, the podcast is part of, um, I don't want to say it's part of OC Screenwriters. It is not really part of OC Screenwriters, but obviously you and I are immersed in that organization. And so we do a lot of film or a lot of uh, speakers, but we also do a Wednesday free networking event in Costa Mesa through an organization, a side organization that was started called OC Film and Television. So we have meetup groups. We have um, – Which
2: is a fabulous way to just meet people in the industry. Isn't local. it? Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And the setting is great. And, uh, you know, you're on the second floor. You're overlooking um, the boulevard. And it's just really conducive to sharing and wanting to
1: talk about things. You know, it's just – It feels good, doesn't it? It feels good to gather – and the speakers have been phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Kristen D'Alessio blew me away. Uh just an incredible uh journey she's had. And so I I was so we have we have uh we have people coming up. I'm gonna uh, Kristen
2: D'Alessio, filmmaker, and was phenomenal and she was at Sony. You know what was one question we forgot to ask her? What's that? We forgot to ask her, was she there during the big Sony uh hack? Oh yeah. And, uh, anything that transpired. I mean, I know a lot of people that left their jobs, but, um, just, uh, just see what her viewpoint was on it. But she was spectacular to hear an actual filmmaker, not one movie, but she's worked on quite a few and, and, uh, has been at the studio and she was just so engaging and so forthright. You know, nothing she was hiding and just came out with simple words and, you got such a quick picture onto the inside of, uh, production,
3: you know.
1: Yeah. Really well, what was interesting about her is she, she took, her and her partner, uh, took a film from conception to, uh, you know, distribution. And she's still, after two years, still working on it. So it was really incredible to hear all this. I mean, she was, I don't think she had that much experience when, before she started it. So, um, were pretty pretty amazing um but coming up in august the third wednesday in august is a filmmaker david Morgison, um who has done a lot of directorial work on like jimmy kimmel and uh, uh you know things like um the 80 the 8th annual american comedy awards and stuff but he also he also did writing on uh stuff like son of a son of the beach nightstand hiller and diller uh so he'll he'll be interesting because he can talk he'll talk about what it's like to be a tv writer uh in the room to, to the writers room this famous writers room that everybody has these misconceptions about so i'm i'm really looking forward to him because i want him to talk to us about uh you know what the what the reality because i don't have that much tv experience and so he'll he'll be great to to do so to find this all this wonderfulness that we're talking about, go to OC dot org, whatever whatever works. Go to OC dot org and then also OC and dot com dot org or dot net. And we also have meetup groups. Uh we have three meetup groups. One's called Costa Mesa Film, um, the other one is OC Screenwriters and the other the third one is OC Film and Television. So if you have also if you have questions about the podcast or you want to uh, submit a question to us, you can call you can go to plotpoints.com or you can go to you can call us at 919 scripts that's s c r i p t s so uh before we go larry uh, I, I wanted to thank you but i also wanted you to plug uh southern california writers association a little bit because that's a that's an incredible group and you guys have made it just uh, just a a fountain of wonderfulness i'm just always so impressed when i go there so talk a little bit about the scwa
2: well, uh, similar interest, you know, it's just elevating the level of uh speaking of what you're listening to rather than just a lot of times uh, writers want to get together and hear how they're going to sell their book on every market or how they're going to write their bestseller in two days. So we concentrate pretty much on parts. You know, how do you put something together? How does this particular part of a novel come together and bring in writers who have had success? And share what their mindset was on doing something like that. But I do have one final thing to say, and that is. Oh yes, all right, we're
1: cutting that out. So <laughs> anyway, all right. So SC, SCWA is OC Writer. Is it OCWriter.com?
2: dot com? dot com. Yeah. Trying to get the writers, but somebody has that hidden somewhere.
1: Yeah, and, uh, let me see who's got, who you got coming up. Um, in, oh, uh, Antoinette Kuritz. Oh, uh, yeah,
2: Antoinette Kuritz. She runs perhaps one of the best writing conferences in the country, mm. called La Jolla Writers Conference, and it's smaller than the bigger ones, but it's so intense that you really come out of there, uh, that you've accomplished, you found out something about your writing, and how you're going to make a portion whatever you're there to look at.
1: Mm-hmm. And- yeah, it she looks really interesting. Um, La Jolla Writing Conference is legendary, right? It's been going on for quite a while. Very, very, very fascinating.
2: Yeah. A lot of writers conferences, you know, from Santa Barbara to the to uh Orange County Writers Conference um that they run in Orange County in Irvine and also down in San Diego. Um, I find a lot of them to be great. They're all great. I find them to be so broad-based sometimes that
3: mm-hmm.
2: you're there. What do I choose? You know, where do I go? You know, you have so many panels and things like this. You know, so you get a bit of this and a nibble of that. It's like an appetizer platter. Whereas I find at La Jolla, you can get a solid piece of uh, work done.
1: Mm, okay. Well, for uh Lorenzo Porcelli, thank you very much for for uh, being with us and myself, Mark Sevi. Uh, and OC screenwriters, we'd like to thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, you can always, uh, like I said, you can always reach us at plotpoints.com or 919scripts. And as always, be inspired, do good work.
0: and We're marching to a faster pace Look out here comes the master race Springtime for Hitler and Germany Rhineland's a fine land once more Watch out Europe, we're going on tour, springtime for Hitler and Germany, look it's springtime, winter